Welcome to Probably Science. My name's Andy Wood. I'm Jesse Case. And I'm Matt Kirshen. All right, we nailed it on take two. We that was did it. We, I we were recording this time. The we listeners the don't right know. Things. Yeah, we just went like two hours without recording, you guys. And then Matt was eating the whole time. It was mayhem. Uh, well, I'm I mean, very... that's probably for the better, isn't it? Because our, our listeners hate it when we eat into the mic. So it's probably good that two hours worth of that was missing from the recording. Yeah, a lot of misophonia out there. I have it myself. Uh, there's got to be people who have that as a fetish who just aren't writing in. So what if... Misophonia? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, a lot, yeah. A lot of those uh, ASMR videos are just people eating. Yeah. Mm. They're just so probably maybe, less vocal about their preferences. Maybe we should do some special episodes where we're, ju- where we're chewing all the way through. <laughs> Someone's going to be happy with that. Someone's yeah, that could that. be, we could do an extra Patreon thing. We could do, it's the same episode, but just with eating noises. <laughs> um, That's a good bonus idea. We could do that. Speaking of special episodes, you know, I'm. Uh, it's it's kind of a bummer that we just have another comedian. We're doing science stories today, you guys. I, no, I think we should... We- re- what? Jesse, we what? don't actually. What's going on? What are you talking Today about? Today is one of those rare special occasions when we have a person who's not going to answer nothing when we ask what their background in science is. We have a returning guest, my old college roommate, uh, new friend to you, Jesse. You guys yes. haven't actually met before. Yes. Um, but uh, listeners will remember him from the Pluto Horizons flyby that was launched, I think, 17 years ago and reached Pluto seven years ago, uh, here to talk about a real-life Armageddon mission, my old friend Deepak Srinivasan, who is muted, I believe. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> muted no longer. You'd think after a year and a half of this, I'd be an expert with muting and unmuting. But hello, Andy. Hey, Matt. And hey. It's, it's nice to know that even literal rocket scientists get Zoom wrong. And, uh, Absolutely. Well, you got like 10,000 different windows. You unmute here, but you're like not muted. You're still muted elsewhere. And it's just too much to keep track of. I have, I found, um, I find that happens a lot. Like, like, uh, when I, you know, doing the clinical trials, sometimes it'd be like hardcore NIH virology people. Everyone's horrible at Zoom. Horrible. <laughs> They're like, you'd have these meetings and their backgrounds are just like pictures of their wife that they didn't mean to upload. You know, <laughs> it's a, it's a mess. Sci- I feel that scientists are really bad at Zoom and that's okay. They're good at other stuff. I guess we're, yeah, we're, we should, we're focusing our efforts everything. elsewhere. So exactly. Oh, well, the good news is this is an audio broadcast, right? So you're not seeing any weird yes. pictures that I, I may or may not be having posted. So we're good. <laughs> sure. Now, Deepak, uh, it's so nice. It's so nice to meet you. Um, you got so you guys were roommates. Can we, I don't want to take away from the actual no, spa- no. space stuff, but what was that like? It, it was like a, a summer and a semester when we were doing this co-op program, working for. Intel. So you would uh, you would uh, um, interview with companies the f- spring of your sophomore year, and then if you match with somebody, you spend that summer taking classes. Then the fall of your junior year, you go work at the company, and then the next summer. So both those two stints in Folsom, California, he and I roomed together. Or actually in Folsom, then in Rancho Cordova, when we were working for Intel. Wow. Yes, we we, we were we were buddies back in college. We took a lot of the same classes then, and then. Out of sheer luck, Andy and I ended up. I, I, did we share a car as well? One time when we. we were I, I, I ju- that's funny because I just googled the first stint. There was three of us in an apartment, and we had one car for the three of us. But our third roommate, I'll leave him unnamed, uh, crashed the car and sort of ended that free car program for all interns or co-op students forever. Oh wait, wait, wait hang on. So it wasn't just one of your cars that you all shared in some. Co- it was literally it came with the apartment. It was it was a rental car. That's Intel right. was paying for a rental car. Yeah. It, oh, it was Intel. Okay, yeah. It was, it was such a good deal. You know, it's like they would they would pay us to come out there to be interns. You know, they would help us find a place to stay, and they would give us a rental car for use that we would share amongst a you know handful of interns. So it's nice to know that even like uh, engineer Intel science people have the same issue as comedians, where you go back to a to a comedy club like a year later and find out that half the perks are missing because someone ruined it for everyone. Like when, when you go back to the same comedy club, you're like, hey, you used to be just uh, order whatever you want from the bar and now they just give you like one drink ticket and glare at you as they hand it to you and like, okay, this can only be used for like Pepsi. Like, yeah. All right, who did it? Who di- who was the comic who ruined it for everyone? It was our third it was our third roommate who made a left turn without looking. Um, and uh, I was riding shotgun. It's the first time I've had an airbag in my face. I I love um, rules when there are when there are rules that are posted somewhere um, where there's obviously a story behind it. You know, like um, 
like on like the push lawnmower where it has it's like don't use don't pick this up and trim hedges don't do it you know <laughs> um i love i love it i'm a huge fan of an obvious backstory um <laughs> And D, I actually Googled that third roommate last night because I was watching a reality show where there was a character who reminded me a lot of him because I forgot he was trying to start a hip hop website back then, I think. Do you remember that? I don't think it was a hip hop website. I think he was trying to get hip hop merchandise with a with a well-known hip hop artist at the time. Oh, no, I remember the name of the URL. I won't out it, but like he was trying to start like a, a like a, a brand, like a hip-hop merch brand or Did something. he succeed? I'll send you a link when we get off. I don't – based on what I found on LinkedIn, it looks like uh, he went more than he money was, around as He was as, Tony as Super Dry. <laughs> I think he's just in finance now. Mm. But uh, – okay. So let's, let's get into the actual purpose of our talk. Yeah, because we always get Deepak back on the show when – when he's about to do or his team is about to do something pretty exciting is about to send something into space to do a cool thing so what cool thing are you sending into space this week well so next one not, not nothing this week unfortunately yeah boo <laughs> slow week sorry yeah can't, can't do this i'm out week. but next week the launch period for our next spacecraft opens and the spacecraft is called dart and dart it's actually an acronym it stands for double asteroid redirection test so the, the thought behind it is that, you know, we you figure that we're smarter than the dinosaurs were, right? So the dinosaurs kind of ruled this planet for millions of years, but, you know, they didn't see it coming. There was an asteroid that came that was just ginormous in size, and it struck likely in the Mexico area. And as we all know from all the asteroid uh, strikes that we've all experienced, that caused some pretty widespread devastation, you know, across the entire globe, causing the dinosaurs to go you know, go the way of the dinosaur. So the question is, you, you know, hopefully we're a little bit smarter than dinosaurs. If we were to see something like that happening, what are we going to do about it? So that's where the DART mission comes in. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of ideas of what to do in the event that there's an actual asteroid heading our way. Many of those ideas were explored in, in Hollywood realms in the past, but this is an actual real science mission that NASA is sending up and we're building it and we're going to be launching it next week. So the, the point of it is to try to hit an asteroid and measure how much we can kind of nudge it. So anybody on the call that's played pool before know that, you know, when you strike a cue ball against another ball, it, it, it moves. There's a, a, a momentum transfer, right? The speed of your cue ball will hit another ball and the different velocities of the different balls will change. Now, there's a whole bunch of assumptions and, and um, unknowns when you actually have a, something striking an asteroid. And that's kind of what we're trying to test out here. So we want to launch a spacecraft and hit an asteroid. This asteroid's in a safe place. I just want to make it clear to all the, all the listeners out there. Right, there's right. absolutely no chance that we're going to hit this thing and nudge it in a way that's going to come and impact us. That's not going to happen. And, and like, like playing pool, there's no chance that it's going to hit like a different thing that's going to hit a different thing that's going to then hit us? We're safe. We're safe. The, the, <laughs> the chances of that happening are it, it, it's actually 0%. You won't hear that from scientists or engineers very often you always have like a little bit of room it's zero percent zero percent if the if if the dart craft hits the asteroid and then goes into a pocket do we automatically lose (laughs) (laughs) if you're on the eight asteroid yeah no no you know if you if you call it in advance then then we'll right 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 right. okay oh sure 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 and we're, we're we're good enough that we can forecast things exactly and call it so no, we we will not lose. That's that's always the thing. I I forget that like NASA gets to, you know, it's it's your spacecraft, so you get to set the rules. We're playing on your house rules right now. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, boy, am I relieved that we no longer have to worry about extinction. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're working on it. We're working on it. <laughs> I'm I'm totally kidding. Um, that's uh that's fascinating. So, yeah. So man. what what are, what are uh, the assumptions that you're because I'm just thinking, like, it's fairly easy to calculate with two billiard balls if they hit, which were pretty closely what's going to happen. But obviously, two billiard balls colliding is going to be a bit different to a billiard ball colliding with a soccer ball is a bit different. Like, the uh, the amount of transfer of momentum between the two things will be different, right? That's right. That's right. So, you know, there's there's the, the exact uh, initial movement of, the, you know, if, if you're hitting a, a billiard ball with another ball and that ball is moving, you know, you have to take into account how things are already moving to try to figure out how all the momentum gets transferred, right? And that's when you have two balls that are made of exactly the same material. 
here we have an asteroid made of who knows what, right? This asteroid could could be made of iron or it could be just like a loose conglomeration of gravel. So, you know, the type of asteroid that you hit, the materials and the hardness of it, that's going to impact, no, no pun intended there, seriously, no pun intended, that's going to impact how much momentum gets transferred upon impact. Uh, also, how much, so when, when you, I'm trying to think of a good analogy here. So just say you take a rock and you throw it into the water, right? It hits the water and you hear, you have this splash, right? So whenever you hit anything with anything, you have some, some of the material that was there kind of ejected, like a, like a splash when you, of water when you throw a rock at it. So likewise, when you throw a spacecraft at an asteroid, you know, as we do, when that, when that spacecraft hits the asteroid, it's going to cause a bunch of ejecta, a bunch of stuff to kind of fly out of the asteroid. Now, if it causes a little bit of stuff to fly out, that's the the amount of momentum that's that's being transferred is pretty much your spacecraft hitting the hitting the asteroid. But if you also end up causing a whole bunch of other stuff to shoot out as well, all of that other stuff acts like little jets that that add like an enhancement factor to how much uh, momentum you transfer over. Does that make sense? Right, because the the material from the asteroid that's going in the opposite direction to the way the asteroid's being nudged is gonna cause a reaction where the asteroid's gonna be nudged more in that in in the opposite direction to that. So it's gonna it's gonna move even more in that direction. Yeah, so that's why I said it's an it's an enhancement factor. So it's it's your your own momentum hitting the asteroid, you being the spacecraft. It's your own momentum hitting the asteroid plus that of the portions of the asteroid that you caused to eject oh, out of the so, way. So that's actually, to, to me, that's kind of counterintuitive, because in my head, at first, I was thinking the um, uh, the harder the asteroid is, the more it would get nudged by the spacecraft in the way that, you know, the, the same way that like a hard billiard ball would be moved more than a soft football if you throw something at it. But actually, it's the opposite, really. If it's looser and more stuff is thrown backwards, then it's going to be thrown even more in the op- in the uh, in that direction. That's true, but there's but what you said is also true, right? There's a whole bunch of different things at play, right? So as you have more looser material, you are going to get more of this extra enhancement due to all this all the material getting injected, but you're also going to have less of the momentum to transfer because of the softness of the material, right? Right. Like bouncing a rubber right. ball versus bouncing a you know a, a different a ball of a different kind of material. So you're 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 both right. Are you implying that this is complicated? <laughs> it's, <laughs> Well, think about I, it this way. If it wasn't complicated, <laughs> then this wouldn't be worth doing, right? Launching a whole spacecraft to test this whole thing out. So there's a lot of, of stuff course. going on. Now, here's something that's uh, maybe I'm skipping too far ahead or maybe it's completely off um, off topic. I mean, I don't think it's that off topic. How, how long is the information transfer time back? How, how long after this event will you know if the event succeeded? Or will you have those measurements... You know, like you you send it, it's way out there. You send it up, you give it a nudge. How long is it going to take to know if uh, what happened with this nudge? Well, that, that's, that's a really good question. So the we're going to launch the spacecraft and we're going to hit the asteroid. And actually, can we give the asteroid a name? There's actually a name for the asteroid. I can, I can give you that. So the, Absolutely. Yeah, yes. So it, and it, it's actually a pretty... It's, it's an interesting story there, but let me, let me answer the question first, actually. How long will it take? So the, the asteroid system... That we're going after is called the Didymos system. Didymos. It's spelled D-I-D-Y-M-O-S. Now I say system because there's actually two asteroids there. That's where we get the name double asteroid redirection test. So there's there's a smaller little asteroid called Dimorphus that actually orbits Didymos. Oh wow. We are gonna be hitting that small little guy. And when I say small guy, he's about the size I, I said he. But the small asteroid that we're going to be hitting is about the size of one of the pyramids in Egypt to kind of give give like a mental scale. Okay. Right. Our, our spacecraft is about the size of a cow, and the <laughs> asteroid that we're hitting is about the size of a pyramid, you know, that you've seen a million times. Either. All right. Now I'm understanding this physics. Right. <laughs> now, I, now I can picture shoving a, throwing a cow at a pyramid. Now I'm in. Take a cow, throw it at a pyramid. That's what we're getting. Now, the, the, you're asking how long do we find out what's going on. Well, clearly when we hit the pyramid, or when we hit the, the dimorphous, the asteroid, our spacecraft is going to be vaporized, right? It's, it's going to be gone. So the spacecraft isn't going to work anymore. Spacecraft's not going to say, hey, everybody, we, we hit the asteroid. Wonderful. So right. the, the only way that we're going to be able to measure what exactly happened is through observations from Earth. 
So when this thing happens, it's going to be about 7 million miles-ish away from Earth. That's the distance between where the impact plate, the asteroid is going to be at impact versus where Earth is. So it takes maybe about, I don't know, under a minute for light to get from, to light, for light to travel that distance. So we're going to be looking at it optically with telescopes here on Earth as well as radar. And, you know, about under a minute later, we'll start getting new observations to see, you know, what happened. And then we'll start to try to figure out how much momentum did we actually transfer over. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And how long how long is the journey from Earth um, to Dimorphos? The better part of a year. So we're we're launching next week, as I said before. Okay. And depending on exactly when we launch, because every once in a while you you end up having like bad weather or you have to scrub your launch for whatever reason and it, it pushes by a day or or two days or three days. And then so as we push, it, if the launch has to get delayed by a day or two or three then our impact date likewise pushes. That makes sense. Right. And the trajectory so, would also change, wouldn't it? Because the... You're right. The whole thing's moved from in a, in a day or two from where previously where you were aiming, right? That's right. That's right. So within... within I mean, they're, they're, it's going to move, but within reason, the, the trajectory should... You know, it will have to adjust things a little bit, uh, little bit here and there. But if you kind of squinted your eyes a little bit, it, the tra- trajectory would look similar enough, Right. But anyway, the, the impact date is going to be sometime between you know September twenty sixth ish to early October. So that's the range of dates that we're looking at for impact, and that's just going to be a, a function of when we actually get off the ground. We hope to get off the ground Tuesday night, Wednesday morning next week. Um, and if that's the case, then we should be hitting September twenty sixth. And then if we delay, we just delay the impact little by little. Wow. So, so again, the actual method by which this is going to work is purely like the satellite is just a kinetic. It's just a, like a ballistic. It's just a thing striking a thing. That's that's exactly it's what it is. Really, and, the and actually, entire <laughs> you, you you use the technical term. It's a kinetic impactor. So that that's what we call it. So you know, there's if we if we were to have to try to deflect or change the change the trajectory of an asteroid, you have different options at play and none of which have been tested before you know you have what we call a tractor option which is kind of this is kind of neat you know, if you launch a spacecraft and you just put it you park it right next to a right next to an a, a asteroid over time there's a little bit of a there's this little gravitational tug between the asteroid and your spacecraft and if you get there with enough time that little gravitational tug can kind of pull the asteroid off of its trajectory and to a, a safer trajectory that's called it, you know, the tractor method, which is I, I think kind of neat. Then we, we just talked just now about DART, which is going to be a kinetic impactor. That's that's the technical term. And then you know there's there's other there's all sorts of other ideas out there. Obviously the the big one being the one that Hollywood always defaults to is the nuclear option, right? If you wanted to launch a nuke and and uh, detonate it either ahead of or near or on the asteroid, that would obviously cause it to change its direction as well. We're not doing that. For now, we're just we're testing the kinetic impactor. That's the one that we're ready to test. We have the technology to do it right here, right now. Let's go test it out and see what happens. So, so you said that um, obviously it's gonna the effect of it is gonna vary massively depending on the makeup of the asteroid. So, while while this is a sort of test slash proof of concept, this is also in a sense only good for one one type of asteroid like if if another asteroid is coming towards earth we'd have no necessary guarantee or knowledge of what that one's made of would we or, or are there ways to tell there are certain ways of telling it and you know if we detect an asteroid long enough in advance then we can actually launch a characterization mission if we have enough time like it, you know, sometimes these things will see the orbit will come near earth and we'll say all right about seven years from now its orbit's going to come near earth again and we have a i don't know 20 percent chance of of impact you know so there, a lot of these things asteroids just like earth revolve around the sun right so they follow their own orbits so if we understand the orbit of it we might have uh, sufficient time to make a change for an asteroid that might hit you know years to decades from now and if that's the case then we have all sorts of options, right? We can we can launch all sorts of missions towards that asteroid, learn everything we possibly can about what's inside of it, and then we can figure out the best way forward. So yeah, you're right. While this is a test of what's going to happen with one specific asteroid, it's not going to tell us exactly what to do for every asteroid, but 
it'll give us data. We, right now, we don't have any data on anything, right? So we're literally shooting in the dark if we don't have DART. If we have DART, at least we have something that tells us for these types of asteroids, this is what to expect. And then we can use our, our own models to try to figure out how that would change for other types of asteroids. I feel that we Go should ahead. use scientists, not models. Um, that seems they can be both these days, Jesse. That's actually really boo. quite close-minded of you. <laughs> okay, fair, fair. Um, that's uh, well, that's so that's fast. I mean, look, I've never uh, been a part of a launch. You know, I've never seen something that I helped with leave the atmosphere. That has to be. I mean, just that's got to feel cool, right? Just on an emotional level. I mean, that's huge. It does. It does. I don't know if that's a dumb question. I mean, that, but that's, I mean, that's crazy. Your parents have got to be proud, you know? It's, it's a statement, not a question. So that I wouldn't say it's dumb. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a dumb question. But no, it's, oh, it's, sure, it's sure. of course. <laughs> <laughs> a dumb statement then. There you go. There you go. So no, it, oh, no, uh, of course it's a big deal. You know, we, um, th these missions take years to decades to, to form. And fortunately for me, this is actually my seventh spacecraft mission that I've launched. You know, we've talked about a handful of them in previous episodes of Probably Science. So it, I, I don't, yeah. don't want to say it's gotten to be old hat because that's, that's just a recipe for disaster when you start taking things for granted. But it's, it is a really special thing when you have like a spacecraft that you've worked on for, like I said, years to decades. And you've kind of, it's, it's almost like the gestation period for a baby, right? You're, you're kind of nursing this thing along and then you launch it, it comes out into its own world and it's got to survive on its own out in space. And right. pretty much every, every person out of the, you know, there's hundreds of people that work on these things, hundreds of thousands of people. And we all, we certainly feel a sense of pride in making these things happen. Do you guys, are, are there matching tattoos or something? Do you guys, uh, I mean, is there any, you guys go out for uh, Applebee's? I mean, there's got to be some sort of something that everybody does. There, there's certainly going to be launch parties and all that, but realize oh, cool, once, cool. once we, once we launch this thing. So, so back in this, I've, I've been doing this for about you know, 22, 23, 21, somewhere in low twenties of years. So it, uh, in my early days of doing this, I was actually the communication system engineer for a lot of spacecraft. So when you launch this thing, it's it's like, hey, great, this thing went on a rocket, it's out there in space now. But that's, for me personally, that's when it got really worrisome, right? Because it would be my job to right. make sure we could talk to the spacecraft. And what good is launching a spacecraft if you can't talk to it after the fact? So that 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 has been traditionally my role in, in my earlier spacecraft is like, all right, we launched it, great, everybody's like cheering and clapping and all that stuff. But that's that's when the terror really sits, you know, sets in for me because it's like I want to make sure that we can – once the spacecraft leaves the launch vehicle, uh, and actually th th that analogy I used about that gestation period, it, it actually works here too because the, there's a cable that connects the spacecraft to the launch vehicle that upon getting ejected from the launch vehicle, that cable gets severed. And you can take a guess at what the name of that cable is. It's it's the umbilical cable. So, you know, the, the spacecraft oh, breaks wow. its umbilical. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a technical term breaks the umbilical and it's literally on its own to fend for itself, right? It, it can't get power from the launch vehicle. It can't get instructions from the launch vehicle. It's, it's got to live on its own with really no other, nothing else like helping it. So you can see this analogy just keeps on going further. But yeah, you know, it, when we see that it, 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 it successfully turns on and starts speaking to, speaking to us on the ground here on earth and everything's like working well, that's, that's just like, that's a phenomenal feeling. You know, knowing that you built this thing and it's working out there in space. That's yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. And what what was your, so that was your first your first few years was in communications. You said, and what other roles have you had in your career since then? So I've I've had a, a handful of different roles. Most of them have been kind of communications oriented, and then you know, just like any, any other career, as you as you do things longer and longer, you tend to you, you have greater responsibilities or different responsibilities. So on, on New Horizons, I was actually an overall systems engineer. So my, my role there was to make sure the overall spacecraft did what it was supposed to do. Um, here on Europa Clipper, my current one of my current missions now, I've kind of gone back to the communications world. And on, on DART, uh, my, my role has been as a reviewer here and there, as well as working a little bit on the communication system, as well as doing a lot of... Uh, engagement activities with with nasa and congress and people like you to make sure that we're oh. all kind of aware of what's going on so it's kind of been fun kind of working really these cool. missions from different angles making sure that, that we keep getting 
you know, people interested in these missions keep getting funding to make sure these missions happen, all that stuff. I'm still blown away by just how the from what you were saying before just we, we talked to you about this before the the delayed gratification of it is like nothing in our world like i i do stand up which is instant gratification and then i also have writing work which is my version of delayed gratification where you write a joke for someone and they're like a few days later you find out if it got a laugh and you know, oh hope this one hope i didn't screw up here like you start a mission seven years ago and then and then it gets sent off into space and in the case of the pluto mission it takes years to get to its destination, and then you find out if you did it right. It it's ridiculous, isn't it? You know, it takes. Well, the Pluto mission was kind of nuts. I think the first like hardcore design for that happened in like 1999 or so, and then we finally launched it in 2006. So that alone is like seven years, which is a sounds like a you know eternity. But then it took nine years to get to Pluto. Right, so it, it, from 2006, and it took nine. We got we got to Pluto in 2015, and then three years later, actually, we we flew by another object in in the Kuiper Belt. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. It, it, a little astronomy lesson. So yeah, everybody knows about yeah, all the planets yeah. here, but then there's between uh, Mars and Jupiter, there's what we call the asteroid belt. Uh, you know, which which is important for this discussion that we're having about dark. But then then you have like the other big planets, and then you have Pluto, which is in what we call the Kuiper Belt. Which is just this, this a whole bunch of small shards of rock or ice that's that's out there beyond Neptune's orbit, uh, you know, that's way way out there. And fortunately, after we flew by Pluto in 2015, we actually found and found one of these really really ancient rocks uh, that uh, that we ended up flying by. We call it Arakoth. Uh, I'm not sure what Arakoth translates to. It's a Native American term. Uh, I gotta look that up again. Something to do with the sky. And we, we flew by this object that is, you know, billions of years old, formed at about the same time that the, the initial solar system was being put together. So it kind of gives us a, it's like a time capsule of, you know, what was our solar system like billions of years ago. So that, that was another fortunate one. But again, as you, to, to your point, these things just take a long, long, long time to happen. So if it is instant gratification. How, how um, far out... Can you stay in communication with the um, with the Pluto launch? I mean, like, like, are we talking a Oort belt, you know, or Oort cloud? Like, how how far out are you going with this thing? How far can you talk? Yeah, so we're still in the Kuiper belt. We have the, to right. get out to the Oort cloud, and and you know, props on. Well, that, I mean, we'll we'll all be dead, you know. That it, it, we probably <laughs> would not be able to detect the signals from that far out. You know, we you need to have a huge huge antenna on the ground to see these signals. To, to give you an idea. The, the data rate that we're getting from New Horizons, that's the name of the mission that we're talking about here that went past Pluto, the data rate that we're getting from there is in the hundreds of bits per second, right, to give you an idea. And you guys can, I don't know what the data rate is for, you know, downloading a Netflix movie on your iPhone, but it's a heck of a lot than 100 bits per second. You know, you're talking about, you know, megabits and gigabits and that kind of stuff. So we're talking about 100 bits, you know, that that's... That's where we're at, kind of at hundreds of bits. And that's when you have an antenna on the ground that, that is a, has a 70-meter diameter, right? All right, so think, think about an antenna on the ground the size of a football field or a football stadium. You, ne you need to have an antenna that large to be able to get hundreds of bits per second back from New Horizons, which is, as I said, in the Kuiper Belt. Oort cloud, that's like way, way further. And then if you wanted to kind of oh, get totally. completely away from our... our, our um, our star, you know, it, you're you're down to, you know, decimal fractions of bits per second, which we just don't have. We don't have the ability to track that. So the New Horizons right now is essentially like the Wi-Fi at our parents' house. That's it's there like you go. That sort of that sort of <laughs> speed. So that's something I wanted to talk to you about about with the communications. So you say you know it takes seven years um, to to get out there. Well, by then, of course, the technology is completely different. So do you guys have like a bunch of old computers sitting around? I mean, for, for these communications, you have to use the same language as the, the ship was built. I don't know if I worded that straight. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So obviously, you got you to gotta build things. You know, anything new is now is not going to be new 10, 15 years from now. But physics is kind of still the same. So when you're talking about a communications link, you're still – it's still a function of how much power can you capture, right? So the spacecraft is like, you know, through its antennas is sending power at the Earth, 
and that's a finite amount of power. And just like a flashlight, right? When you when you shine a flashlight anywhere, that that beam kind of diverges, right? So yeah. in the farther away you get, like just say you're shining a flashlight at the wall, you'll, and you're standing like a few feet from the wall, you'll see this nice circular light on your wall, right? But then as you back up further and further, that circle gets larger and larger and larger, and also gets more diffuse. Make sense? So that that makes total sense. So if yeah. you yeah, if you're on Earth, just say Earth is like a little spot on your wall. You know, the amount of light that's being captured by that spot gets less and less the further and way further away you go. Right? So at some point in time it gets to be so diffuse that you're just not gonna be able to not gonna be able to discern the light at all. It doesn't matter what kind of technology you have, it's just right. the the signal is gonna be below the noise. And then that's you're, way now you're stuck. That's way more logical than my explanation in my head. I imagined like when you get a communication from New Horizons, it's like the AOL Instant Messenger sound happens on like a computer somewhere, like from 2005, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but, it, but it is yeah. using, obviously it is using the computer chips from like the New Horizons, the chips, the microchips that are on New Horizons were ones that were available to be used 10, 15 years ago, right? The, it is using older technology as well. Even even older, actually, if you think about it, because um, I'm going to get into a little bit of subtle stuff here. So, you know, your iPhone or your Samsung phone or your Android, whatever, that's got pretty, uh, you know, cutting edge technology in there. Now, to get something hardened for space, you know, you have to survive crazy radiation levels that you don't have here on Earth. Right. So you need to have hardware that's a little bit more robust. And because of that, you don't you can't use like the sleek, super, you know, compact hardware that you might have in your iPhone. It just won't work out in space or it won't have the reliability that you need. You know, like the, the last thing you need is, you know, how many times does your does your computer or your phone just like hang up for whatever for whatever reason? Right, you don't just kind of so glitch. Just, yeah, you just turn it off, turn it on again, everybody's happy again. Right. right. Now if that kind of thing or or you know, you might have like a software update or you might have to get a new phone. You know, if you launch a you know hundreds of millions to billions of dollar spacecraft up in space, there's no you can't just say, oh, send that back for a for a repair order, right? It's it's gotta work. So as a result of that, you we can't really use the most newest hardware that's on that's available on the ground because that hardware is just not reliable enough for us to throw up there in space. That makes sense? Yeah. So, I mean, is this, I, I assume that would also make what we think of as like a microprocessor or something larger. Like if you want, if you really want to nerd out, like I would assume you guys are making like your own, like solid state op amps, like discrete op amps and stuff that can withstand huge temperature variables. Um, so I would imagine, okay, I guess the way I'm picturing it is if you wanted to take your iPhone and have one that worked in space, it would be as large as a car. Does that make sense? Well, hopefully not that, that big, way- but yeah, but it would be, okay. it would be significantly okay. larger than, than your iPhone right now. Cause you need to have like the radiation shielding. You need to have what, what another thing that you mentioned is that is really good, right? When you're uh, regarding temperature, cause when you're in space, right. if you're, if you're in sunlight, it's freaking hot. And if you're in shadow, it's really cold. And you know, the, the temperature ranges through which we have to make these things work are way wider than, you know, what your, what your iPhone user manual says to be in you know so you just got to have your totally. hardware's just got to be way more robust you know for whether it's temperature or radiation or or even launch you know you think about launching yourself on a spacecraft you're, you're getting crazy vibrations you know not not vibration levels that that are you know typically usable or that, that iphones are designed for right you're you're shaking it really hard if you're sending it on a rocket with enough velocity to get out you know break or sort so all these environmental things you know force us to use just more robust, more hardier uh, hardware. And I would also assume that like the variables have to, I mean, there's no room for mistakes. I mean, so you know that like, I mean, obviously, you know, like components have tolerances, but that's not good enough for NASA. You you know, you can't have a 5% tolerance on something. It has to be, the voltage has to be identical every signal. So I would assume just the the network around that to get that to work would just make it larger. Um, this is all just me talking. This is making assumptions. No, you're, you're, you're diving pretty for, deep. That's pretty good. Um, so, so yeah, like a, maybe a suit a suitcase size for an iPhone, maybe. 
for yeah, that, that amount that, that of... might be yeah that might be closer yeah it's okay yeah there's a lot of stuff we had to do you know you have to design in robust margins right like you were just saying that each voltage has to be exactly the same or you have to design a system that allows for a large amount of variability right you know and so you don't have to be if this thing is three you don't have to have the other thing also be three you can make the other thing work you know anywhere between one to five so right even if there's variation you can absorb it and that, that's that's what we typically try to do so we try to have margins wherever we can to make sure that we give give ourselves the best chance of success it's very cool wow yeah, yeah. so so getting back to the mission that's launching next week um was there a reason you guys picked a two asteroid system is is, is this only going to be a proof of concept of how to prevent getting hit by a two asteroid system well or? this is this is actually that's a fantastic question so remember the the big asteroid is called didymos and the small asteroid is called dimorphos we actually have never seen dimorphos before because it's so small that we can't get a radar image of it so we, we we here on earth have no direct knowledge of it we don't know what it looks like we don't know how big it is we have an idea how big it is but we've never seen it before, nor do we know exactly where it is. So this is part of the challenge. The only reason that we know it exists is because it's orbiting Dimorphos, or excuse me, it's orbiting Didymos, the bigger asteroid. Oh, and it's changing the orbit pattern because it, because it's going around it? Well, so what happens is that when you're looking at Dim uh, Didymos, which is the, the big asteroid, and to give you an idea, Didymos is about one and a half times, if, if you just imagine this big spherical-ish rock about one and a half times taller than the World Trade than the New World Trade Center building in New York. So just to give you guys a visual, that's that's how big Didymos is, and then it's like 800 meters or so in height. And then Dimorphos, the little guy, is about 150-ish meters, so 800 to 150-ish. But so you have something one and a half times the, the tallness of the World Trade Center, and then you have a pyramid of Giza kind of orbiting orbiting. So we only know that Dimorphos exists because as it orbits Didymos, its, its view from Earth, it kind of goes behind Didymos and then comes out, and then goes behind it again and comes out. So what, what happens is that when you're looking at Didymos, the big asteroid from Earth, you kind of see it get a little bit dimmer every time the small asteroid goes around behind it. Oh, so it's not even a wobble. It's actually just like the, the light fades and... It slightly fades and slightly increases. Exactly. And we call that the light curve. So you're looking at the light curve because, you know, all, all we're seeing is the sun's reflected light on, on, you know, off of Didymos to us, if you're looking at it optically or you're looking at it with radar, which is, you know, we're sending the signal and coming back. And when you're doing that, we see when, you know, when, when Dimorphos is not behind Didymos, you're getting the reflection of the light or radar signal from both the big asteroid and the small asteroid. But when the small asteroid is behind the big asteroid, you only get the reflection from the big asteroid. So we see it, and we from from looking at that light curve, we can see that the small asteroid orbits the big asteroid about once every twelve hours or so. And that's that's how we know it's that that's that's all of how we know that it's there. The only the only reason that we would see that little dip every twelve hours in the light is if there was some smaller asteroid orbiting the big asteroid so, so that's how we know it's so, there. So from that can you calculate its size and or distance of orbit well we can calculate its its orbit period right because that, that that's just repeating and then by just again going back to the models that we use like the, the we, we can kind of figure out about how big it is and that's where i said we, we know it's about 150 meters uh, in size but we have no idea what the shape is right it could be spherical it could look like a like a peanut shell, it could look like a croissant, you know, it could look, you know, it, we have no idea. We have no idea what the shape could possibly be. And th that that's part of the challenge. So we're, we're launching a spacecraft that's going to hit an asteroid that we have never seen before. And the spacecraft is going to be heading towards the asteroid system at uh, super fast speed. Like I think the equivalent of like New York to DC in, in a couple minutes, you know, so it's super fast. And our spacecraft isn't even going to be able to see its target. So let me, let me just say, so when, when we're about an hour out, that's when we're going to start to see a, a pixel. We're, the, the, our target is going to look like one pixel in its camera when it's at about an hour out. And then as it gets for, uh, closer and closer, we're going to start to see, you know, the, the, the size of the asteroid is going to be two pixels, then four pixels, then eight pixels. And then we're only then are when you start to see what the shape of this thing actually is. Meanwhile, we, we are screaming towards this thing. 
and the spacecraft's going to have to be pretty much on autopilot with with a smart navigation system to kind of look at that camera image and figure out how does it how do I the spacecraft adjust myself because it, it's it's got to make the decisions all by itself. It can't. There's nobody here on Earth that's going to be able to kind of joystick it in to hit the target. Right. Spacecraft's got to right. see what's going on, make make all the right corrections on its own, and then you know smash right into the target. Remind me again. You said at the beginning of the episode how long it takes light to get from this asteroid to Earth. About a minute, uh, under a minute. Okay, so so you so people on Earth will have you you'll have time to see what it looks like before it smashes into it in in. In actual, I, I guess there isn't really a sense of real time, but you know what? But obviously, nowhere near enough time to sort of send calculations back and get it to do different things manually. That's right. That's right. So we, we do plan on having an antenna on the spacecraft that's going to be just kind of streaming data back at Earth, you know, as it's barreling towards impact. We're going to be seeing, you know, what, what are we getting from this? Or what's the spacecraft detecting as we're seeing it? And then hopefully... We lose the signal at impact because if we don't lose the signal, that means we missed, and that we really hope that's not going to happen. But one one other way that we're going to have stuff information is that the the Italians actually have provided us with a little itty bitty CubeSat. So this little small little ride along spacecraft that is going to eject off of the main Dart spacecraft a little bit before impact, and it's going to try to take photographs and effectively selfies of the. Uh, of the spacecraft during the impact thing. And then it'll beam back some images back to Earth just so we have some idea of what's going on. But it's going to be it's going to be as good of a, a, an image that a small CubeSat can provide. You know, so that'll be a nice little add-on. And then actually a few years from now, the, the ESA folks, our European colleagues um, across the pond, they're launching a spacecraft to the same... Uh, Didymos system where they're actually going to orbit Didymos and take a whole lot more measurements. You know, that, that'll tell us a lot more about the, the composition of the asteroid and we'll have a better understanding of what we actually did to it when we hit it. And again, the, the goal of this was to redirect the trajectory of not just the small one, but the entire system, like as if that was what was going to hit us and making sure we could change the trajectory of the whole thing. No, we're, we're only hitting the small one. We're not going to touch Didymos. Right, but, but I'm saying is the goal to change the trajectory of the big one via the small one or just change the trajectory of the small one? Just the small one. We're going to hit the small one okay, and then okay. because we can measure that light curve that we talked about before. By, by looking at the light curve, we can see how much do we change the orbit by. You know, we, we expect to change the orbit by about, uh, I don't know, a few minutes or so. So or to change, change, change the period. So, you know, right now it takes about 12 hours for it to go all the way around. We're hoping to change it uh, to roughly 11 hours and 50 minutes. So that's, that's the amount of uh, impact that we're trying to put on this thing is to change the orbit just slightly. And we can measure that from Earth by looking at that light curve. And if that works, does that mean we've, we've proven that we can save ourselves from a Great Pyramid-sized asteroid, but not a uh, 1.5 times World Trade Center asteroid? Yes and no. Again, everything everything scales, right? It's kind of like if you find if you find that there's going to be an asteroid that's going to be hitting you, if you find it well enough in advance, even if it's a gigantic asteroid, if you know about it well enough in advance, you can just make the slightest nudge, and then over time that nudge becomes a big thing, right? If I if I told you that hey, there's going to be an asteroid that's going to hit us next month, and we're pretty much we're pretty much done. There's nothing we can do about that. But if I told you you know, six years and two months from now, there's going to be this asteroid that hits us. Then, you know, we have enough time to launch a mission. Take That might take a couple of years. It might take a year to get there, like we talked about before. But then we hit it. We put, we give it a little bit of a nudge. And then over the next several years, that little nudge kind of adds up to become something large enough to push it outside of where Earth would be. So the main proof of concept here is, is, uh, proof of accuracy, I'm guessing, rather than proof of we know how physics works. As long as the composition isn't something wildly unexpected, we know what'll happen when these two things collide as far as transfer of momentum. So, it's, is it mainly, or maybe we don't, but is it mainly about can we prove the accuracy of the hit? Not just the well, that that's part of it. You know, the 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 whole smart nav and guiding it in there by itself. That that's true. That's that's one of the things that we need to prove out is that navigation process. But the first thing that you said about just how much momentum gets transferred. You know, we, we have an idea, like straight up physics, if it was just a cue ball hitting another, another um, you know, pool table ball, then we, we know what that's going to be. But we don't quite understand 
all of the mechanisms of how how momentum gets transferred from a spacecraft hitting an asteroid for which we don't really have much knowledge about the composition. And by doing this test, we can constrain a lot of the a lot of the unknown variables, and we'll, that'll be able to help us out for free, for future asteroids as well. Oh, cool. Yeah, it'll be very. And then uh, when when we get the results back a year from now, we're hoping that's also. Oh no! Actually, we'll get the real, pretty much real time pictures from the CubeSat, which will be fun, but not going to tell us whether the trajectory change was enough. And then a year from now, we'll know if the trajectory change was what we were hoping for. Well, we we launched it. We don't we don't hit it until about a year from now, anyway. Oh, that's right. right. A year. Uh, okay. So so yeah, a year from now is when the impact is going to happen. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, I've been living this for how, three how, years, but you know, this is new for you. And how long until we will be able to say yes or no to the trajectory change being? enough that we call it a success oh days days from when we get the impact in a year yeah yeah so right correct correct so we, we hit the thing and then as i mentioned before we're we're under 10 million miles away during at the time of impact we're going to have all sorts of optical telescopes on earth looking at the thing so you know we, we're seeing that light curve that we talked about where you know every 12 hours we see a dip in the brightness of, the, of that asteroid system so if we see oh, right. that so the first Right, the first time around, you'll know. Yeah, so the first time around, you're gonna be like, "Hey, this this happened 11 hours and 50 minutes instead of 12 hours." All right, you know, let's let's party. We 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 did it. But then, you know, we were gonna do multiple measurements over the course of many months to more finely measure everything and kind of tease out all the all the data, you know. But pretty much within days, we'll be able to say success. As long as it isn't it basically given that it's an experiment, isn't it a success? As long as it hits, isn't it a success? Whatever happens, because if the trajectory barely changes at all, then that's also important data. That's you. I like the way you think. You know, when when you're trying to find something and you don't find it, you know that's still good information, right? That tells you that what you were looking for wasn't there. So likewise, no matter how much momentum gets imparted, that that is the data that we're looking for. You're right. That's that we we think it's going to be roughly a, a ten minute drop in the in the uh, the orbit period but you know if it's eight minutes that would be interesting right Cause that tells us that there's something different going on or if it's you know 15 minutes then that tells us something else is going on that's that would be exciting actually right like when you when you get a result that you're not expecting so you're absolutely right so just just hit, as long as we hit the thing it's going to be a worthwhile day i not not that i want to even suggest this possibility but if for some reason it doesn't hit if it misses is there a plan b well <laughs> that's not going to happen but if it doesn't hit then we have to wait until the next spacecraft because there's there's not you know it's not like star trek or star wars where you can just like kind of turn your spacecraft around and move back in the other direction right like if you're an x-wing fighter fight, trying to shoot down a tie fighter you know you it, you don't have dog fights in space that's not how a space battle would be you're just you're just, you're just moving you're, you miss your target you're just going to keep on going and that's what would happen with us. We don't have the fuel to be able to do a maneuver to turn around and try again. But there's no like secondary target that is a possibility that's further away. I mean that that would be what we would look for if that were to happen. We haven't really we haven't really gone to the process of trying to see what a secondary target would be, you know, because we don't know what the ultimate trajectory of our spacecraft would end up being. But that what you just said is probably what would happen, just like what we did with uh, with New Horizons. If you remember, we had that our primary mission was to fly by Pluto, and we accomplished that. And then we have this, you know, this perfectly good spacecraft, you know, barreling its way out of the solar system. Everybody's like, well, let's. Is there anything else that we could find, and, and we can we could fly by, and, and you know, we found something that was you know three years down the road. Right. F the first time we spoke to you, you were actually in the process of you see the flyby just happened, and you hadn't yet decided the secondary target. That was a. Uh... You had a short list, I think. Was that the case? Okay, that yeah, that, that was a that was gosh, I can't remember when the last time we talked was, but yeah, so we, we found a secondary target called Arakoth. It was about four billion miles away from Earth, and we we ended up flying by it. So that 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 is now the record for the farthest object that we've ever sent a spacecraft to. Yeah, it's called Arakoth, roughly four billion miles away, and for scale, Pluto is about you know a measly three billion miles away. Oh, I forgot it was that far. That's insane. It, it, it's 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 yeah. You know, when, when when somebody says a billion miles, like what does that even mean? You know, I, I don't even know. There, there, there's no. You know, I, I talk about you know the small asteroid being the size of a pyramid and our spacecraft being the size of a cow. And these these are things that we can kind of picture in your head, right? I, I don't have an analogy for 
four billion miles away. It just that that doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just far. Man. So what's uh so once you guys launch, what are you on to next? Well, there's a whole bunch of missions that we have going on. So we have one of the things that I'm working on. Uh, actually, we talked about this one of the times that I was out there. I was out at JPL once, and we kind of did did a probably science just serendipitously. I was there, and you were there, and it worked out. I talked a little bit about Europa Clipper. That's a spacecraft that we're going to be launching in 2024 that's going to go to Jupiter and, and um, explore Europa, which is one of the moons of Jupiter. And Europa is a, arguably one of the most interesting places in the solar system. It's a it's a ice ocean world. So imagine you have like this this rock, and around the, the rock is an entire is a global ocean of water. All right. So imagine the Earth was just like covered in water. That that's this rock, and then on the very outside of that water, you have a layer of ice, kind of like this shell that's protecting the water on the inside. That's what Europa looks like. And we have so you have this global ocean. Europa just for scale, I can give an analogy here. So Europa is about the size of our moon physically. And it, and yeah, I told you about this global ocean around that moon. It's to give you an idea of how much water there is. It's about twice as much water as all of earth. So you, wow. you add up all the water wow. on earth. Yeah. The Atlantic Pacific, the bottles of water that you have in your, your apartment, add all that together and double that. That's what we have on Europa. And that's encased in this ice shell and this water is old. So, you know, you, you, this, this water that that's been there for billions of years and there's energy, there's there's time. There's the right. We know it's salt water based on other measurements that have happened. So you, you wonder, you know, Earth has been around for a few billion years, and look what's happened here on Earth over the course of planetary evolution. Now, if this is if something similar is going on in Europa, you know, that would be astounding. So Europa is we think is one of the most likely places for life to exist outside of Earth. So we're going to be sending a spacecraft there to kind of just not test the water, so to speak, because we're not going to be physically going to be touching the water, but we're going to be taking a lot of measurements from the outside, you know, looking in, trying to peer inside, you know, through that ice shell into the ocean and detect whether or not, hey, can, can life truly evolve there? Well, and what would what would you do if if there is life in our solar system, but it's only on that asteroid you're about to hit? And then, <laughs> and now they're like mad. I, yeah, I imagine. I imagine the last image from the um, from the camera is just like a guy looking up, like, "Oh man!" Yeah, like, ah, yeah. you know, you're that or yeah. And that's it. We killed the we killed the what, only. What if alien. they launched their own craft to deflect your craft? Yeah. What do you you have a contingency plan? What do you do then? Well, you, you were talking about you know success of the mission. That that if you're looking at trying to find out something new, that would be something really new. <laughs> That's a very good point. That's yeah. the most successful mission. I would, I would, yeah, I would call, I would call that most... mission success right there. <laughs> easily. Yeah. So the Europa uh, flyby, what, what's keeping us from, maybe this is a dumb question, it's just distance, but like if we've done multiple landers on Mars, why not attempt a lander on Europa? So th there, there are plans to try to do that in the farther future. The thing is, so, so you, you've heard of the radiation belts that surround Earth, right? So the, the uh -huh. radiation belts of Jupiter are kind of like Earth's belts on steroids. They're, they're like an order of magnitude more. And Europa is just, the moon Europa just is basically bathing in radiation. So if we were to try to land a spacecraft on Europa, it just, it wouldn't survive very long uh, with, with current technologies because the radiation would just basically kill it after a few days. So that, that's the, the, the way that we're doing the Europa Clipper mission, which is what I was talking about before, is that we're going to kind of, dive into the radiation, fly by Europa, and then then get get out of there and then do it again. So it's kind of like a whole bunch of orbits that are kind of shaped like petals of a daisy. And so it'll fly in and fly out and fly in and fly out. So that way we minimize our radiation dose and we just keep on making measurement after measurement. Uh, the other reason that makes, that makes a, a lander really hard kind of goes towards what Jesse was talking about, uh, but he, he might not have known that you were talking about it. You know, we, the last thing that we want to do is kind of infect a planet, right? So we, we, we're taking as, Yeah, totally. That was the point I was yeah, making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. We, we, we take great care for all of our missions that, that are going out there to places that could harbor life, such as Mars or, or Europa. And we, we build our spacecraft as, as cleanly as we can. We want to make sure we're not carrying any microbes or anything else that could introduce something, right? So if we were to accidentally crash into Europa or crash into Mars or crash into 
some planetary body that we think could potentially harbor life, the last thing we want to do is disturb that life, right? So if we actually have a mission that's intended to land on Europa, making sure that we build something that has really, you know, no life forms that we're bringing along with, with us is really, really difficult to do. And that's another reason that it's kind of hard to actually land on, on Europa. Plus, it's hard to, it's also hard to slow down. You know, when you, landing on Mars is hard enough, and, but Mars has an atmosphere. We can use that to help slow us down. To actually get to Europa with, with using enough speed to get there, you know, in a handful of years as opposed to like decades, and then being able to slow down, it's just prohibitively, it's, we just can't get, we just don't have enough fuel to be able to slow down in, the, in time for that. Oh, last, last Europa question. Do we, are we pretty sure that the uh, water under the crust is liquid? Or is it yeah. possible it's solid, it's frozen solid all the way down? No, no, we're, we're fairly certain it's liquid. In fact, it's it's deep liquid. And we, we know that because we actually have... So, so you know how when, when the moon goes around Earth, you have it causes the tides, right? Like the, the moon's gravity is pulling on the water on Earth, and then you know, right. that, that causes you to have your high and then subsequently your low tides, and that just repeats itself. Europa, it's, it, Europa and Jupiter are kind of like the Earth and the moon, but backwards, Right. So as Europa is orbiting around Jupiter, Jupiter's got this, you know, Jupiter's huge. Right. And so it's got this massive gravitational pull that's kind of pulling and pushing on the surface. So imagine like you have this ice shell, but it's being kind of deformed regularly. And I'm using my hands to show, describe what's going on. So if you were to see my hands, it would make perfect sense. But, you know, because of that, we, the, the only way that would be working is if the, that layer between the ice and the rock were liquid water. So yeah, we, we know that's there. Uh, so, I was going to ask, how do you, how do you get something so sufficiently sterile that you don't have any kind of risk of um, infecting the the planet? Like if, um, like the, you know, you could you can sterilize every component going into the spacecraft, but then it sits there on the launch pad, for example. Does it have to be inside a shell that's inside a shell that's sterile? Like how, how do you? You know, obviously that's the, air, exactly the right. air around the spacecraft has microbes in it all the time. We're breathing microbes constantly. So what do you do? We take great care. Like the, there's special clean rooms that are used when you're processing hardware or building a spacecraft that's, that's going to a place such as Europa or Mars. You know, if you're going to a place like, like Dimorphos or, you know, some other quote unquote dead places, you don't need to take that level of care. But yeah, you're, you're, you're doing all sorts of things to kind of minimize the introduction of new microbes. You also do things with your hardware, like bake it at really high temperatures for some amount of time to kill off various micro and anything that could be there. And then there's also just the journey. When you're traveling in space, you don't, you don't have the luxury of Earth's magnetic field to protect you from spaceborne radiation. I mean, we, we live in this little oasis here on Earth and we're protected by our magnetic field, which stops a lot of the radiation coming at you from space. When you get out of that little comfortable little bubble that we live in, it's pretty harsh, right? So even like the the, the journey from here to Europa, there's going to be you know a certain percentage of a lot of the whatever bugs could be on the spacecraft will get killed off by the radiation. So we we take credit for all of those things. And you know before I was, I was we were talking about how I'm saying that there's a zero percent chance that we're going to knock uh, the asteroid into a into a into a place where it could impact Earth. I, I stand by that, but I also said that. It's very rare that people say zero percent in science and engineering, right? So, likewise with these, with these, um, you know, contamination type things that we're talking about in terms of microbes, we have to get it below a certain threshold. And I can't, I can't give you the exact number, but you know, you say that all right, by doing this operation, you're going to kill off half the bugs. By doing the transition from here to there, will kill off ninety-five percent of the bugs, and then we're going to do something else that will kill off another five percent of the bugs. And then little by little, you get down to like, you know, a minuscule chance of ha actually having a bug that you're carrying with you. And then at that point in time, we say we're good enough. I, and I would assume one of uh, probably 50% easily of the reason for doing that, for not introducing it, is not necessarily to – it's so you don't accidentally think you discovered life. That's true. Like, you're right. You're right. It, it, would, it would suck to like be like, hey, good, we discovered life on another planet. And be like, yeah, we found these. We found these amoebas on Mars, but it was just on the rover right. already. And and now now you yeah. contaminated Mars. So now now any other subsequent spacecraft that goes to Mars that would look look for that thing, if they you don't know whether what you're finding is indigenous or whether it's something that we brought with us. And you know now now we've lost that science forever. 
yeah, which would be sad. Yeah. So how how do we wow. uh how do we follow the launch? Because I know space agencies are generally pretty good at that stuff. Yeah, you doing you doing TikTok? What are you doing? What do you got TikTok? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that it, what's what's the limit on how long a TikTok video can be. What was the thing we were talking about before about instant gratification doesn't quite work in space? <laughs> yeah. Right, right. <laughs> there's, an, there's, there's an analogy somewhere in there. But no, there, there's a, we have a website, dart.jhuapl.edu. Uh, you can put that on, on your page. That, that's, that's the mission's website, and they're going to be constantly updating that. NASA uh, NASA.gov is going to have you know a, a bunch of uh, tweets and texts going on about the launch. It's going to be, if you're looking for it, it's going to be hard not to find. Let me put it that way. Uh, but also, if you check out the website, dart.jhuapl.edu, there's actually a little uh, little game on there called Planetary Defender. So you can go in there and try to earn a badge. You can answer a whole bunch of questions about planetary defense, defending our planet, which is what Dart's all about. And if I did my job well, you guys learned, but learned about it, and then you could take the test and consider yourselves a planetary defender. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we got to get those badges. Now, th- I... Ass- I assume it's just a little digital badge, but is there any way to get actual badges? Can we get, I mean, you know, just an iron-on is fine, but... Um, Jesse, just for, for you, com- for you, I'll, I'll see what I can do for you. Thanks, man. All right, man. <laughs> not Andy, though. Wow. Maybe Maybe Of course not. This is so pretty big for Jesse, because he's already also a fireman and a spy, so he's, like, to, to be a... <laughs> I'm also a junior pilot. <laughs> yeah. I have those little those little wings because it was my birthday one time. Um, so you, so you put those now, all together. You're 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 a spy, a pilot, planetary defender. Mozet was like yeah, a it's fireman. like a James Bond type guy. Yeah, uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm also I'm also an honorary HVAC installer, which is weird. <laughs> I didn't even know they had. Um, actually, so I, I, I can when, use you. Actually, I need to th- I need to tr- replace my thermostat at home. That, that I can do, but there's something else going on. So. Okay. Well, let's exchange right. information. I'll, I'll, I'll get you over we'll my house. It. We'll do it. Um, so when exactly, and let's just go with, I mean, I, I I assume you guys all use like Zulu time and stuff over there, but when is the launch? So, yeah, so launch, if you want to talk about this, so Zulu is uh, what we call a universal standard time. It used to be called Greenwich Mean Time. So the launch, like I said before, was a so Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, between right just before Thanksgiving, and it's at I think I'm looking it up now. So it's at six twenty, Zulu on uh, on November twenty fourth, which is Wednesday. So that that's Greenwich Mean Time. So you'd back off five hours to get to East Coast time. So it's around one twenty East Coast time, then back off another three hours for your time. So it'll be Tuesday evening for you. Okay. Yeah. Tuesday before, th- yeah, we'll put this up. We'll- that information is readily available both on the website as well as Wikipedia. Excellent. We'll make sure this goes up um, before that, so everyone has and where, time. Where does it launch from as well? In real time, it launches from Vandenberg Space Force Base out in California. So that's well, near us, local yeah. to where you guys are. That's right. Oh, you know what? This I, is actually the one you know what I, like near Santa Barbara, kind of, or San Luis Obispo. It's been a while since there was a big launch near us. Is there a not in Florida? Is that are we able to go and watch it? Like obviously not close, but is there a vantage point from where you can actually get close enough to sort of you know see the explosion, see the see the thing launch? See the thing launch. You know that that's a that's an excellent question. I I've never actually been to Vandenberg before. I've been to the Cape, you know, dozens of times, because that's where we've launched most pretty much all of my spacecraft from has been from Florida down in Cape Canaveral. So I don't know where all the good nooks and crannies are out in the Vandenberg area near near you guys. I'm gonna guess that the, I, the Reddit or similar will probably have an answer to that question. This is so weird, but but I have actually been to Vandenberg Air Force Base, like all all up in it, because I did a uh, I did a show there in their commissary and uh, got really bad food poisoning. That's my story. But <laughs> um, but after the show, like. You know, I, I got to go look around at stuff, uh, which is, I mean, with an escort, they weren't just like, you want to go look at some nukes or whatever. But like, um, yeah, yeah, it was great. I don't think I, I don't think it occurred to me you could launch a spacecraft in there. So I'm sure I didn't see that set up. But um, yeah, very high tech. Okay, well, there. Yeah, I, so I, I think we should do it. I wonder if you could see it from like a Solvang, which is also a delightful little uh, resort, uh, Scandinavian town. Wine see it from the area. top of the windmill? In Solvang? Yeah, I mean, it's it's about like 10 miles away from there, so I wonder if that would be uh, 1 a.m. Tuesday night, Pacific Coast time, right? I am, I'm definitely, okay, that... 1 a.m. would be my time, so it would be like roughly 10, 10 p.m. Oh, your time. that's a very reasonable Wait, time a- to, to go uh, there, that's... 
Yeah, for 10, you, I think it's, uh, like, yeah, 10, it's really doable. Without 1020, 1020 PST. Okay. Guys, maybe we arrange a meetup. Maybe. <laughs> and maybe yeah, we meet up with some weird, listeners like, there. Yeah. Yeah, go to like some weird, like the beer house. And like ha- have some pretzels and watch a lunch. I, I'm gonna. I bet the second this we finish recording, that's what I'm gonna be looking into and seeing whether we can do this. Because yeah. I, I, I would love to see a rocket launch. I've never seen one. Oh wait, it's 35 miles from Solheim. Maybe that's the best. Maybe Lompoc is the place to. Well, watch e- from. either way, we can work that out. We have, yeah. we have vehicles. This is true. All right. Well, Tupac, so great to have you. I love that the, whatever you're on, it's because something exciting is happening that is going to be national news in the space realm. That's uh, international news. This is literally Armageddon and Deep Impact in, in the real world. So cool. Uh, have we asked yet, by the way, Armageddon yeah, or Deep Impact? Wh- which, which one? Oh, yeah. What do you, what's your vote, Deepak? Have you seen them both? I, I, have I seen them both or which one do I like better? Have you seen them both? And what is your opinion of the two of them relative to each other? I've seen them both. I, I think Armageddon, if I'm just there to just be entertained, I'd go with Armageddon. If I'm there to be more introspective, you know, depending on your mood of the day, then I'd say Deep Impact. They're both good. They're both fun. For what they are, right? It's not It's not yeah, meant to be like scientifically really accurate, so it's fun. Yeah, one, one has a little more emotional heft and, and the other has uh, well, Bruce Willis. Well, they're com- – they're completely inaccurate, so it's got to be frustrating to watch. It's like uh, it's like when I watch a movie where like a comedian gets laid, you know, <laughs> like what is this? this is horrible, you know. So I I sort of identify with being a rocket scientist watching Deep Impact. I think, I think those are parallels. Probably I think uh, yeah, pretty much pretty much I'm right there with you. Um, <laughs> no, this has been a wonderful Deep Impact. And, and is there a way for people to? find you social media etc how do we um yeah so i'm, I'm at how, I'm, how do people see what you're up to yeah i'm, I'm on twitter at at deepak srinivasan uh, and i'm sure andy will put that on the website not as active as i used to be i used to be in fact i wasn't i was totally not active until we had our first probably science episode that we did way back when 2015 or something like that right and then i actually started i created the twitter handle and i started tweeting a lot and then lately i haven't been as good at that as i should as i should well, you've be. been busy you so, got things to do yeah. so maybe this will be the the impetus that gets me back on there so i do have i do have a twitter handle thanks for asking and yeah i'll, I'll see what i can do to try to get to be to be a better steward of my twitter account <laughs> Well, I've I've never wished anyone good luck on a launch before, but what do we say? Go, break a leg? Like what do we? Uh, I mean, to, is in, there to s- infinity and beyond? Yeah, to infinity and beyond. Was, How does one wish in, someone good luck? I was just in luck? Disney World a couple weeks ago, so that 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 works. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Certainly not break a leg, but right. I, 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 do, I do like the whole Buzz Lightyear thing. So let, let's go with that. Sure. Well, then let, let's go with that. And once again, yeah, thank thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. It's it's so cool that. Yeah, it's very cool that we get to just pick the brains and of and hear about these things from someone who's actually doing it. So thanks, Andy, for sorting it. Thank you, Deepak, for joining us, and thank you, listeners. Oh, thanks again thank for the invitation, to... guys. This is this is always always a good time. Always a good time. It was a blast. And listeners, we'll see you next Bye. time. Bye. 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 Bye.